We have the honor of speaking with Todd Martin, who's a former top 10 player, Wimbledon semifinalist, Australian Open finalist in 2004, and now he's running the Hall of Fame tournament in Newport, Rhode Island. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Saki. Thanks. So you know, let's get right into it for our audience. I know this is a stop right after Wimbledon. So as a tournament director, what are your responsibilities to lower in some of the world-class talent that you give every year and how hard it is to convince players to play on grass post-Wimbledon? Yeah, it's, it is difficult to, um, uh, as a, uh, for a player to justify playing on grass after Wimbledon. Um, everybody has to come to the U.S. eventually. Uh, but the best part about coming here is, one, um, it is the home of the history of the sport. So I think for any player who hasn't been here, uh, there's a pretty compelling case to come here for the first time. And then once they've come once, I think it's pretty easy for them to come again. We are way more laid back um, in every way here than most every single tournament on tour. And so I think the, I think, uh, the players who do come here really enjoy the relaxation um, combined with the tennis and the setting. Uh, not having night matches, only having four-day matches gets the day through much more quickly. And I think uh, because of our facilities, they also can practice on hard court uh, after they lose or even during the tournament so they can start prepare for the, preparing for the rest of their summer. Sure. Last year we spoke and you said, of course, the brand itself doesn't need any introduction. It's Hall of Fame. It's world class. Uh, but I've been following tennis for a very long time. And I just realized myself when I talked to some European fans, they think it's still a very American thing. So are people in Europe, and especially the players like Michael Streak and Sokova, are the inductees this year. So how does the brand transcend over to Europe? Do they realize the importance of this brand? Because in America, it's huge. If you're a Hall of Famer, you know, you know, you, you pretty much have the much-needed validation, and not everyone gets it. Yeah. Well, Halls of Fame, not just the Tennis Hall of Fame, but Halls of Fame are very American in their, uh, in their formation. Uh, what I think is probably the most... Um, uh, constructive way to have the uh, the concept resonate outside of the U.S. is to have it be focused on the history of the sport. Um, most people come from more historic land than the U.S., and uh, it just so happens that we're the ones, or or the the history of the sport is stewarded here in the U.S. Uh, but that's it. Uh, it, it's the history is owned by everybody, and um, and I think when you get over into Spain and France and England and Italy, and these these countries have such an amazing history in our sport and in sport in general. So it's, uh, the message is really more about the history of the sport than it is about um, this you know this uh, ambiguous term called mm-hmm. fame. Absolutely. And I also sit here, you know, it's an honor to talk to you, but I also represent a lot of fans like myself because, you know, I'm a fan first. And uh, so there's always this question or a discussion that arises when someone gets inducted or nominated. So what, is this, what are some of the criteria that uh, someone like a one-slam winner like Mike, Michael Streak, which again, he won the most important slam. He won Wimbledon, reached number two in the world, Olympic doubles, you know, uh, gold in doubles. Uh, so why he makes it and uh, not Yevgeny Kafelnikov? Because that's, I'm sure you've answered this question you know, a few other times. So just walk yeah. us through that process. So um, 
I think the the first and most important statement is there really is no um, specific criteria. The criteria is uh, basically an exceptional international uh, career, and if you define that loosely, uh, everybody who's ever played on either the ATP or WTA tour for several years would have uh, qualified. The difference is, um, uh, I think the standard has been set very high. Yevgeny is an interesting uh, uh, example. Uh, I would say it's an example of our policies and procedures working, um, even if I maybe don't agree with what the result is. But we have a committee that creates a ballot, and then um, and that committee is about 20 three people. Uh, and then we have a vote, a voting population that votes mm-hmm. for who gets into the Hall of Fame. The committee just decides who is deserving of consideration. The voting group, right, which is 120 or so uh, Hall of Famers, members of the media, uh, influential people in our sport and so forth, um, they need to say, 75% of them Hmm. need to say, you're supposed to be in the Hall of Fame. And to date, with Yevgeny, that has not happened. Um, So they're exercising their authority as a member of the voting group. Not everybody agrees with that. Some people really agree with that. Um, Hmm. uh, Every single Hall of Fame does it differently. But um, I think ours is um, a suitable... Uh, a suitable, a suitable format for the world for the world game. Okay, and let's make a quick jump here to the recently concluded championships at Wimbledon. And you know, John Isner for me, I picked him on my radio show to go all the way, but then that remarkable thing happened at the last set that would never end. And he's been part of a couple of those matches, yeah. which has reignited the conversation. You were playing there not too long ago. You played some five setters. Uh, how is tennis then and now different? Because Players don't recover after these matches, and even said Anderson was pretty spent. So you think has has a time arrived now for the committee there, or even other slams to look, if not a six-all tiebreak like the U.S. Open, maybe meet somewhere halfway like a ten-all, and not shortchange the outcome, you know, of the tournament because uh, either Isner or Anderson could have, they could have had a say had it was six-all or seven-all or. Yeah. Well, I think it's. Uh, uh, my opinion, my personal opinion is uh, that it's gotten to the point where some sort of an adjusted uh, conclusion would be appropriate. Um, I think the matches in general are longer than they've ever been, uh, in large part because the guys stay at the baseline and hit topspin forehands back and forth to each other, and that makes for long points, longer games, longer sets, longer matches. Um, I would, uh, I would prefer to see a tiebreaker at nine all, which would be an extra half set, or twelve all, which would be an extra set. But the guys, Kevin and John, had to play f- uh, the equivalent of five decent sets, mm-hmm. five six four sets. That's uh, on top of the four sets, so that's nine total sets that they played, which is really ridiculous. Um, and you saw that. You saw that not so much in the loser. You saw that in the winner, um, not being able to put put his best foot forward in the final. I have a feeling that um, 
there's probably some um, some progress within um, Wimbledon's mindset uh, in this direction because they've seen it happen now, not on court 18 in the third round, but on center court in the semifinals, which effect, which adversely affected the final. Um, every single uh, party, organization, tournament uh, on our tour, if they've been around for 50 years, They've seen th- they've seen them t- sell- themselves through change. Uh, I don't remember when, but at one point in time, Wimbledon had just a challenge round. So there's one tournament, and whoever wins that tournament plays mm-hmm. the defending champion yep. for one match to con- to actually hold the trophy. Uh, at at some point in time, they went to a full knockout um, draw. Uh, I think. I think now is a, is an appropriate time, and I don't think it would be um, truly overreactive. I don't even think it should be perceived to be reactive. I think it's just a matter of um, making sure that it's it's safe for the players, uh, it's enjoyable and consumable for the for the fan, and it also is um, it, it preserves. The integrity of the competition throughout for the event. Uh, all that said, we have to also remember that just like every other sporting event in the world, television has a tremendous amount of effect on the events. And I'm sure the BBC and ESPN and whoever else broadcasts around the world would have had an opinion about um, what was seen last Friday. Okay. So, Todd, it's always a pleasure, and thanks for your generosity with your time. I know you have a tournament to run. It's an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks a bunch. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Tennis with an Accent radio show. Welcome to all listeners. This is Sakib, joined by Matt, and we have plenty to talk about as usual. How are you doing, Matt? Doing well, Sakib. Uh, I've rediscovered sleep after Wimbledon. It's always good to get a little sleep in every now and then. Absolutely, especially when, uh, you know, tennis is so international and a lot of time zones come into play. So, yeah, you have definitely earned, you know, some well-deserved sleep because you covered uh, for tennis with an accent with some awesome writing, and uh, it was very engaging. So, on that note, uh, people who have just watched Wimbledon last weekend, tennis is a very international sport, and its fabric runs across different countries and continents. And uh, Matt's going to talk about how international the tour is and with its diversity. Uh, the ATP, the men's side, has three different tournaments. And surprisingly, we are playing on clay. So, Matt, talk about that. Summer clay season is one of the more curious entities on the ATP tour, but it's very real. And I should say that clay is curious in that it also has a February swing, a winter swing. When most players are playing indoor tournaments, people will recall Roger Federer playing Rotterdam where he uh, became the oldest number one player uh, on the ATP Tour in the Open Era. While Federer was playing indoors in the Netherlands and other players were preparing for the outdoor North American hardcourt swing in Indian Wells in Miami in March, there were clay tournaments in Argentina and Brazil, among other places. And in the summer, after Wimbledon, we have a little two-week sequence in which Europe once again hosts red clay tournaments 
It's weird, but it's real. While most of the tour and certainly the elite players, uh, Dominic team being the exception, rest for the summer hard courts season in August, uh, some of the players who are more naturally comfortable on clay, they will go to Europe for these two weeks. We have uh, ATP tournaments in Bastad, Sweden, uh, and also uh, uh, there will be tournaments next week in Switzerland and also Kitzbühel, Austria. So uh, these two weeks are opportunities for players to build up ATP rankings points. And it might not seem like much because these are ATP 250s. Next week there is one 500 tournament in Hamburg, Germany. The points might not be big, but when you consider all the players bunched together near the bottom of the top 100 of the rankings, merely getting 100 more points or 200 more points can mean dozens of ranking spots. And those dozens of ranking spots uh, to inform our audience, could mean the difference between automatic qualification for the U.S. Open in late August and having to go through qualifying rounds. Being, let's say, number 70 in the world versus number 100 in the world, that is the di- that is going to be a difference between whether you get direct entry into the 128-player main draw or whether you have to go through three qualifying rounds and the U.S. Open starts in late August, so if you're playing three qualifying rounds, that is typically, not always, but typically very hot, very humid, late summer New York weather to be able to avoid those three qualifying rounds and get direct entry into the main draw, that's a pretty big deal, and it's an especially big deal this year with the U.S. Open blowing the roof off previous records and thresholds for prize money if you get into the first round of the main draw of the U.S. Open, you, know, you are making over 50000 bucks. That is a big difference for players near the bottom of the ATP uh, structure, uh, the, the players who are trying to scratch out a living. So playing these clay tournaments might mean very modest gains in points, but these gains in points can and do and will make a difference for the U.S. Open and being able to qualify for that tournament, the, the men and women uh, will make their lives and will make their checkbooks uh, a lot better by being able to play some of these clay court tournaments. So that's one of the quirks of the schedule. And, of course, accompanying these clay events in late July, right after Wimbledon, a reminder that the tennis world never really stops until the very end of the season at the end of November, Uh while we have these clay events going on, we also have the Hall of Fame Championships held in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, the, the Hall of Fame Championships, of course, as they always do, coincide with the Saturday unveiling of the new members of the Tennis Hall of Fame. And they all give speeches. Uh, it's the tennis equivalent of what we see at the Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, and what we're going to see at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. In a week or so, this is tennis's moment in the sun. And covering the Hall of Fame championships is, of course, Saqib Ali, my partner. Saqib, take take your audience through some of the things that have been going on behind the scenes at Newport, some of the sights and sounds you've been taking in, some of the observations from players, how the court's playing, 
some notable tennis uh, luminaries you've been able to talk to. Take us through your experience of Newport and what, what has gone on and, and what you expect to continue to see as you return to that tournament over the weekend. Uh, sure, Matt, I'll do that. Uh, but first of all, uh, I just want to tell uh, the tennis uh, lovers in the area who listen to the radio show, this is the closest men's tournament uh, we have on the tour to the to Massachusetts or the or Lowell, you know, this this area. Uh, the women's uh, closest stop is in Connecticut, New Haven, so both approximately uh, 100 miles, give or take. Uh, while this tournament is the only grass tournament uh, played in the United States now, it does have a lot of history, a lot of, uh, you know, mystique about it because it's played on the, you know, holy lawns of uh, the Tennis Hall of Fame, which is like such a, such a brand by itself. Uh, the tournament is run by Todd Martin, former Wimbledon semifinalist and former Australian Open finalist, top 10 American player. So I've had the honor of speaking with him a couple of times. And as a tournament director, it's hard for him to get, like Matt said, a lot of big names, or even big American names. Like John Isner was uh, entered in this tournament, but this is normal uh, routine for tennis tournaments across the globe. If a big player or if any player has a great result, like Grand Slam or a Masters 1000, uh, especially since they are played across uh, different countries and continents, there's a good chance. Uh, the player would withdraw from next week's tournament, citing fatigue or whatnot, so he doesn't get penalized. And Isner uh, is it not at fault because he played that, uh, you know, humongous, you know, like that, that grand semifinal against uh, Kevin Anderson, which uh, lasted 6 hours and 32 minutes. And as a result, uh, he could not attend Newport. Uh, but Newport still has a great field, and uh, it has Adrian Manorino, the second highest-ranked Frenchman in the world as a top seed. Again, he's not a household name, but he's a very crafty lefty player uh, who is actually one of the better grass court players. But Matt mentioned something uh, about the conditions, and uh, this is how grass used to play before Wimbledon changed its grass to much high-bouncing grass that we see on TV where baseline play is pretty much the order of play now, where baseline is like, uh, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and even Federer stays back. So, but Newport, you don't have that luxury. It's an old-school grass where it's slightly low bounce, it's faster, and there's, a, you know, an odd bounce, which you don't see at Wimbledon that often. So that makes uh, the play totally different. And I had the chance of uh, talking with uh, Germany's Misha Zverev, uh, who is the uh, older brother of uh, Alexander Zverev, who is uh, the top, one of the top five players in the world right now. And uh, Misha Zverev said, yeah, these, these courts are different. Uh, of course, uh, just like anyone, he had a subpar Wimbledon, so he made the move because this is the last stop at grass, and Misha plays an old-school serial volley game. So he came over here to grab some ranking points. Maybe, you know, of course, money always helps. So playing tennis uh, playing tennis uh, for money is not easy if your name is not Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, or some of the other stars like Del Potro. Uh, compared to other games, tennis players in the top 100 make a decent living, but it's uh, it's very different. Uh, I also had a chance of talking to one of the only Egyptians in the top 200, Mohammed Safat, who I will release a cover story on tennis with an accent side. You can go check it out there. Uh, he's a classic example of a journeyman who, like Matt mentioned, his goal is to be in the top 100 because what happens in the top 100 match, as like you explained, you know, uh, very clearly, that that only allows you to make a better livelihood. You can enter certain tournaments and you can enter other tournaments where there are a lot of high-ranked players. You can enter the qualifying draw. So each week on ATP Tennis Tour and even on the WTA women's side, a lot of players try in the qualifying to enter the main draw. And Safwat is one of those guys who's been knocking that door. Uh, he's come on the revolving 
door. This side of the revolving door a few times, but he's more of a permanent resident between the 100 to 200. And if you look at his game, you really can't distinguish his game from a top 70 guy. That's how good these guys are. So it's about small things. And uh, one of the most interesting things about Safwat was he told me, Matt, that he's traveling with a psychologist. And I asked him, why a psychologist? He said, it's such a mental game. So you need to stay motivated and, uh, you know, the losses add up. And uh, a lot of time, you know, you need someone to erase any self-doubt or any, uh, you know, any of those feelings. And I was kind of surprised that, uh, of course, you know, Safwat is not bringing in the dollars like Nadal or some of the other big guys. So he has a small team. And uh, I saw him on the court. I was there for seven hours. I saw him do three practice sessions. Matt, can you believe it? I mean, this is how hard all these guys work. And when you think you know it all, you go to these small events as a tennis connoisseur, and then you see all these things you take for granted. Because when the uh, tennis world, you know, all the eyeballs are on Federer and Nadal and some of the biggest names like Serena, there's always so many of Safwats and Misha Zverev's who are, you know, out there trying to make a living. And they're all like great players because anyone who's in the top 500 is a phenomenal athlete. Because uh, it's not like uh, some of the team games. Here you are on your own. And you're fighting to stay relevant in the conversation. And uh, and you also talked about the induction. So, Matt, uh, yeah, Michael Speaks getting inducted this week. Uh, that's another topic you may want to, you know, uh, talk about. And our audience can probably relate if they bought Wimbledon. Uh, wow, he won, what, so many years ago. So what do you recall of that, Matt, before I give, you know, some of my memories of Steak on the tour? Well, the thing that sticks out to me with Michael Stieg and his 1991 Wimbledon title is that when he won the Wimbledon semifinals, you know, he beat your guy, you know, and for our audience, Sakib is a big Boris Becker fan from back in the day. Uh, before he beat Becker in the final, he beat Stefan Edberg in the semifinals. And what's notable about that match, that semifinal, is that Stieg never broke Stefan Edberg's serve. But he won because he won three straight tiebreakers tie after losing the first set. Four six, seven six, seven six, seven six. It was a, a reminder to me. It was a note to me. And I was 15 years old back then. So now you can do the math and, and figure out how, how old I am. It was a note to me back then that you could play extremely well on grass and still lose. You could play extremely well in sets and still have those sets taken away from you by another guy, another opponent, who had a huge serve in clutch situations. You know, Novak Djokovic served huge in big moments. Many people would would generally agree that Rafael Nadal was the slightly better player in the third and fifth sets of the Wimbledon semifinals this year, but Djokovic served well in every big moment he faced in those sets, and as a result, he was able to take that match away from Nadal. So, Sheik and Edberg in the 91 Wimbledon semifinals, that in many ways was my true introduction, at least my conscious introduction, to the reality that you can play well in a grass match and in grass sets and still lose. And, st- and Michael Sheik was the author of that upset over Edberg, who was then the defending Wimbledon champion after his victory in 1990. So, Sakib, what are, what are your memories of Michael Stieg as he prepares for his big day in Newport on Saturday afternoon? Um, you know, a lot of those memories go go back as, you know, like uh, childhood, if not childhood, like boyhood. You know, I'm pretty much the same age as you. So, you know, tennis is such an individual sport, and uh, you become, uh, you're either, it's one of those uh, rivalries, becker Stieg, especially. First of all, it happened from nowhere. Stieg played a semifinal in Roland Garros in 91 in French Open, losing 
to American uh, Jim Courier, who went on to beat Countryman Agassi that year. And that was my first glimpse of Shtick. And I said, okay, you know, this guy, uh, you know, it, it, I, I couldn't tell as a fan, like, if he's a clay court player, but he definitely had a very smooth serve, and uh, Courier beat him pretty easily. I think it's more set. And then uh, he shows up at Wimbledon in the match you talk about Edberg. And uh, as, as a young as a young boy, you know, he was always rooting for Becker. I wanted Edberg out because, you know, they were just huge rivals. But little did I know that this guy, you know, who's from Becker's country, would do the same two days later on Sunday. And that was probably one of the, uh, not uh, worse, but that was very un-Becker-like that match. He was, you know, he was talking to the crowd. He, he was, you know, crying, uh, you know, out loud. He was breaking rackets. He was, you know, talking to linesmen. That was just weird. That was a phase when Becker didn't know what hit him. And um, and that, that started a very contentious rivalry between the two Germans who were, Becker was clearly, I think, the better player. He came out with a clear head-to-head, I think, 9-5 or 9-4. I don't remember now. Uh, but Streak won the most important match of their career. And uh, they both had uh, huge egos. I believe now they're, like, you know, close to their 50s. Uh, and Sheik uh, spoke to Sports Illustrator John Wertheim, and he said uh, after retirement, their relation improved a little bit, but they are not like buddies. And uh, Sheik uh, is a tournament director at uh, Germany's biggest tournament in Hamburg, which is, again, a clay court tournament that you mentioned, which is going to take place next week. So, yeah, and then Sheik also helped Germany win Davis Cup, which is, you know, huge in America. And uh, and him and Becker, you know, did put away their, their differences and uh, partnered in the 92 Barcelona Olympics to win the Olympics gold. And that's something, if I get a chance to speak with Michael Steak this week, uh, more than a Wimbledon final, which has been documented in many accounts, because Steak and Becker are synonymous in Steak's career. So I want to ask about the other side, you know, how did that double sparing uh, came about? And uh, I read in India, well, you know, that happened that it was very last minute, but I don't know if those details are accurate. So I want to ask Michael Steak, like, who approached who and, you know, and uh, there were rumors that Becker didn't even stay in the, in, in the in the Olympic Village. So I want to give him some, you know, interesting tidbits of uh, that partnership and how they won the doubles gold on clay courts in Barcelona. Uh, and more memories of Sheik. Uh, Sheik was a very fluent player, like, uh, again, a textbook player, single hand backhand, you know, uh, effortless serve. And uh, he, he did reach uh, U.S. Open final in 94 where he was uh, beaten by Andre Agassi in straight sets. And, uh, and he also, I believe, reached a French Open final in 96, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Matt, uh, when he lost yep. to Evgeny Kafelnikov. So that's, that's, that's another account yep. where he outdid Becker and Sampras by reaching a final on a clay major. Yeah, that's something that Becker and Sampras never did. Uh, and, you know, as you talk about speak specifically through that prism, Sakib, it, it brings to mind uh, Marin Cilic. Uh, you know, he didn't make the French Open final but Chilich has made the finals at three different majors, Australian Open, U.S. Open, uh, and Wimbledon. So I see a lot of parallels there. And, of course, if Steak is in the Hall of Fame with his singles resume, I think it's it's very likely that, that when Chilich retires, uh, his career resume has already gotten him to a point where he's going to be let in. Now, there might be some revised rules policies with the Tennis Hall of Fame, uh, but but Chilich is going to sit right, kind of right at or near the cut line in terms of any criteria that are established. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how Chilich's career is going to be regarded com- uh, in comparison to Michael Steve. 
Now, let me ask you this, Matt. I know this was not uh, uh, intended as the agenda of this conversation, and but I, I feel you can at least give a very high-level answer because you're closer to the governance of uh, American sports, especially at the Hall of Fame level. And uh, Tennis Hall of Fame, even though it's international, it's still very much an American thing. So in basketball or football and baseball, uh, the the criteria to get inducted, is it all about what happens on the field or is, is, it such, is it such a brand that whatever happens off the field can sometimes be against because it's uh, it's such an honor to be inducted? And, and what is your opinion? Should on-court or on-field activities be the only criteria to have someone – uh, you know, get and become a Hall of Famer. Well, what what we most prominently see in American team sports, in terms of non playing field related uh, items entering into Hall of Fame votes by writers and people who have Hall of Fame ballots and cast votes for athletes, is baseball with steroids. You know, that has been the the most prominent issue in terms of looking past a player's stats, looking past a player's championships, and considering the player's level of ethics and or morality relating to whether that athlete gets into the Hall of Fame or not. Now, I am of the belief that, you know, this is not about rewarding uh, uh, people for being like no- Nobel Peace Prize winners or United Nations diplomats or uh, you know, peace workers or social workers or nurses. You know, we are not awarding uh, people for being humanitarians. We are awarding people for being great athletes. And so if you look at Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, uh, other prominent baseball players who are not yet uh, in the Hall of Fame because of steroids and, and related issues, they were great Hall of Fame players before they started using steroids. They had already achieved enough to be seen as generationally great athletes even before uh, they uh, made their wayward forays into the use of banned substances and, and things of that nature. So I believe that, you know, if you are a generationally great athlete and you have already achieved at a Hall of Fame level and then you do something profoundly unethical, uh, let's also look at Pete Rose, for example, in terms of betting on baseball. That's, that should not affect whether you get into the Hall of Fame or not. You know, you achieved at a certain level as an athlete. That's what a Hall of Fame is meant to reward. It's, this is not a good conduct medal. This is not a citation, uh, for, for, you know, good behavior. This, this is about how well you achieve. So I think we need to draw that line, but a lot of the voters in both baseball and also football, uh, they think that there should be a line between, uh, the behavior uh, and whether you get recognized and enshrined in the Hall okay. of Fame. It's an unwelcome direction, but I think that's where we are. All right, so would Dennis Rodman, if he's already not inducted, would he be a Hall of Fame candidate, uh, you know, according to you? Yes, he would be, and, and, you know, one has to realize that this you can be in the Hall of Fame not just for offense, you can be in the Hall of Fame in any sport. For defense, it's kind of like in tennis. You can be in the Hall of Fame for doubles, not just singles. And, in fact, Helena Sukova, who's going to be inducted into the Tennis Hall of Fame on Saturday along with Michael Sheets, she's getting in on her doubles prowess, not her singles prowess. Sukova won nine doubles majors. She didn't win a single major title 
in singles. She made four singles finals, but all of her uh, major titles were in doubles. So in that vein, it's similar that in, in the team sports, if you were a great defender and rebounder, as Dennis Rodman was, absolutely you can be in the Hall of Fame. So what if you average just a handful of points? And, and, points and are not the sole measure. And just for the listeners to give the background, because why are we discussing Rodman and other athletes? Because there's a certain notable uh, tennis omission uh, for Hall of Fame. That's Yevgeny Kapalnikov of the Russian Federation, who hasn't been inducted into the Hall of Fame while uh, some of the younger and less accomplished players, which is Michael Sheik this year, and some of the younger players like Andy Roddick and uh, Kapalnikov's compatriot Marat Stafin have been inducted. So in tennis world, uh, you know, sometimes the criteria is not clearly defined even though Todd Martin, who we've already listened to uh, in this show, has, has given his, his take how the process unfolds, but it always remains a discussion for fans like me and Matt and at every level. So, Matt, uh, let's keep going in this direction for a few more minutes. Uh, I know Roddick is American, and, you know, he did a lot good for the American tennis, but uh, are you okay that, you know, he gets in and uh, Kefalnikov doesn't, who won not only... Uh, the 96 French Open, he was the last man to win singles and doubles at the 96 French Open, which probably is a feat. Uh, I don't think the way tennis is heading uh, is soon going to be replicated. Well, you know, I'm, I am okay with Roddick getting in uh, because the Tennis Hall of Fame has been very generous with its Hall of Fame inclusions over the years. So if you're going to set a standard of generosity – Hey, that's fine with me, but as long as you're consistent about it. And so the lack of consistency is what's the problem. And if you're using consistent metrics, and if someone such as Andy Roddick gets in, then you have to have Yevgeny Kathonikov in. So I'm not objecting to Roddick's inclusion. The, the bigger issue and problem is definitely Kathonikov's exclusion. Uh, so I think I, I, I'm with you there, and I spoke with uh... – uh, it's, 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 it, it adds more fuel to this case because I spoke with Boris Sopkin. He's uh, one of the legendary Russian coaches in tennis. And you can go check out my interview with him on the Tennis with an Accent podcast page. And he told me when I was talking about Safin, he said, look, Safin is a great guy, but the best player to come out of Russia is Yevgeny Kefelnikov. And, uh, and that kind of, you know, made me revisit. Really, even though I'm a Safin fanboy, but I think what Kefalnikov did is really, you know, something what McEnroe used to do. He used to win singles and doubles. And, uh, Matt, let's talk about that. Uh, why it, the doubles is such a foregone conclusion for the top men. Uh, and even with the exception of Serena and Venus on the women's side, not many top players on both sides play doubles in the majors. What has changed from the McEnroe days? Well, what is fundamentally changed is that this is not a serve and volley tour anymore at least at least at Wimbledon but let's go back a little more let's go back a decade before McEnroe's ultimate season his 82 and 3 season in 1984 which also included uh, Grand Slam doubles titles as well as singles titles a decade before 1984 is 1974 tennis historians will note that 1974 was the last year in history that three of the four major tournaments were played on grass. And as you yourself noted in talking about Newport uh, earlier in our broadcast today, the grass at Newport is more of the old-style grass. It's not the beefed-up, uh, extra, extra 
resilient grass that Wimbledon created in the 1990s uh, to, to create a more even bounce, uh, to create, you know, a, a surface that wouldn't get torn up quite as easily. So in 1974, with three majors being not only on grass, but also on a, a level of grass which wasn't as resilient as the more recent formula that Wimbledon has developed, um, it was necessary to be a very expert serving volleyer. I mean, that was relatively commonplace on tour compared to today when a, a serving volleyer, such as Misha Zverev, is the pronounced exception uh, rather than the rule. So given that time in tennis, uh, being able to play serve and volley all the time, you could play your singles matches at major tournaments on Tuesday, and then on your off day on Wednesday, you, you could play your doubles match, and playing doubles with all the net play it involves, that would basically take the place of practice. You know, McEnroe would basically spend his off days in singles at the majors in the late 1970s and early 1980s playing doubles. And so the doubles fed into his singles game because singles in that time required so much serve and volley and net play. So there was a natural synchronicity. There was a natural symbiosis. Everything kind of flowed together. But now you really can't play serve and volley tennis on a consistent basis. And most of the tour is hardcourt based, which, you know, if you look at Rafael Nadal's career, it's been murder on his knee joints. So you just can't play every day on hard court, certainly not at the major tournaments. Uh, it's just way too much work. It's way too physically demanding. You just can't do today what you were able to do 35, 40 years ago uh, during McEnroe's time and even just before McEnroe's time at the beginning of the open era of professional tennis. Hey, a couple more minutes on tennis, Matt, before we talk about, you know, the Kawhi Leonard uh uh, trade in uh, in the NBA. So let's stick with doubles. Uh, an, an interesting point you made with, with, with the McIndoe days. And Andre Agassi, I believe in 98, you know, he was playing uh, in Stuttgart, Germany, a doubles event when Becker was about to retire. They were rivals all year, all career long, and they decided to play uh, in Germany. And uh, Becker and Agassi prior to that had a beef, and, you know, this was their, like, patch-up period, and this was Becker's hometown. And I, I, I remember clearly what Agassi said when the German press asked him and, uh, in 98, like why they partnered up. And he said Becker is one of the best, probably along with McIndoe, the two best doubles players he's ever seen. And the McIndoe, even though he had a great doubles career, Becker had, you know, won two titles. Uh, so what, what is your take? Do you believe the best singles player, especially in that era when Servan Bali was the order of play, uh, to a lot of people, it makes sense. What is your opinion? Are the best singles players, if they fly uh, the same dedication in hours, can they also be the best doubles player? And John McEnroe did it for the longest time. And Boris Becker, you know, you know, won the Olympic gold. Michael Steak won the Olympic Wimbledon doubles. So we've seen certain examples. What's your take on that? And uh, let's, you know, wrap it up quickly, and then we can talk NBA. Well, just I have to reiterate that as the tour became more of a hardcore tour and less of a grass tour, just the physical toll taken on players was more considerable. One must also realize that the advancements in racket technology and the advancements in string technology, which uh, manipulate the, enable players to manipulate the ball more than ever before, those have also played a role in making tennis more of a baseline game. 
I can't stress enough the, the reality that McEnroe, when he was playing uh, at his height in the early 1980s, that double basically gave him a form of practice which honed his single skills. So that, that playing doubles was an enhancement of singles. Today, given the nature of the way tennis is played and the level of technology involved in tennis, you know, playing doubles can certainly improve your net play. I don't think there would be any debate about that. But the physical trade-off, the physical cost of playing doubles is far more severe than the benefit of being able to improve your net play. So it's just not a trade-off which works for the modern tennis player compared to the player of 30, 35 years ago uh, in Becker's time and in McEnroe's time. Before leaving tennis, Sakib, I do need to point out that since we are talking a little bit about doubles, we do need to say that our colleague at Tennis with an Accent, Jane Boyd, who can be found on Twitter at the handle down the T, uh, she wrote a couple stories for us at the end of Wimbledon a week ago, which were very much on point. And they, they, they were stories about how doubles in professional tennis has been pushed to the margins, pushed to the side of the road in terms of the television focus. And when I see doubles matches, I only see them at the majors, French Open and especially Wimbledon and a little bit at the U.S. Open. But really, Wimbledon is the time when doubles gets more live coverage than at any other point during the year. You know, ESPN has a, a six-hour broadcast window on the final Saturday and the final Sunday of the tournament. And, of course, the, the singles finals were very short. Kerber won in straight sets over Serena. Djokovic won in straight sets over Anderson. So there was a lot of airtime on ESPN last week uh, for doubles. When I watch doubles, I look at all these fun battles at the net, you know, the whap, 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 these rapid-fire exchanges. Doubles is a really fun thing, and I think that if tennis networks, the television networks that cover tennis, would devote real energy to doubles, I think that a lot more people would get involved in the sport. So that is something which has to be said for doubles before we leave behind uh, the grass court season and this talk about how uh, serve and volley is enhanced on grass and, and how realistic it is for a singles player to maintain any sort of presence in doubles. Uh, so, Matt, yeah, the, let's talk about the big news in, in the NBA. You know, since LeBron went to L.A., the rumors were Kawhi Leonard is going to join him there, but this is not how it played uh, played out in the end. Uh, there was rumors about the Sixers, but he is going to the Raptors. So what does that mean uh, for the Celtics, and what does that mean as an overall move for, you know, for this marquee player who's going to be leaving the Spurs? The main insight, Sakib, is that while Boston and Philadelphia are going to rule the NBA Eastern Conference for the next decade, pretty much, this is the Toronto Raptors' last stand. This is Toronto's last attempt to try to compete with and overtake the Celtics. Now, of course, Toronto was geared towards stopping LeBron and the Cavs the last several seasons, but I think we can realistically insert Boston in place of Cleveland as the target in the Eastern Conference. So this is Toronto's last attempt. A key point here, Kawhi is probably not going to stay in Toronto beyond this season. He has made no secret of the of the fact that he doesn't like cold weather. Uh, the Los Angeles Lakers are going to make a big push for him next summer in 2019, and that next 
cycle of MBA free agency. So this is probably just a one-year rental. But nevertheless, if you're in Toronto's position and you fail to overtake LeBron year after year after year, and you're now looking at a Boston Celtic team with Gordon Hayward assumingly being healthy for the coming season, and you're looking at a team with Kyrie Irving being healthy for the coming season, you need all hands on deck. You need a special player. And you also needed to really downshift or downscale DeMar DeRozan's place in the larger scheme of things, given his inability to perform in the playoffs. So this is Toronto's last attempt to try to, to get to the very top of the Eastern Conference in the playoffs and make the franchise's NBA Finals. I don't think this lifts the Raptors above the Celtics, but it's a shot you have to take. It's an attempt you have to make. And Toronto is at least giving it the old college try. One other thing that has to be said, though, about Toronto, and this is a deficit for the Raptors, why was Dwayne Casey fired if Kawhi was going to be brought aboard? You know, you had an NBA coach of the year, and you replaced him with an in-house hire, an assistant. Why are you making that kind of move if you're bringing Kawhi aboard? So that certainly bodes well for the Boston Celtics in the coming season. On that note, I think um, we should make a switch, and let's talk uh, some cricket on the air when we come back. Thank you. So we have uh, Anand Mamdipuri joining us uh, to talk some cricket, which is going to be groundbreaking, I guess, for this coverage of the radio station here. Uh, Anand, uh, just uh, a history for the listeners, uh, is one of the founders for Tennis with an Accent, and he's equally passionate about tennis and cricket. Uh, welcome, Anand. Thanks, Saqib. It's great to be here. So India is going to be uh, playing some test cricket, which is the longest uh, version of the cricket uh, the game of cricket, and they are up against uh, England in England. And uh, as Anand, uh, th- these are some of the tours that cricket fans look forward to because everybody's pretty good these days at home. So there are some marquee places if you are an Asian cricket team, uh, England, Australia, South Africa, that's where the uh, mark of greatness lies. So what do you expect uh, with the Indian squad that's announced? you think, is this a good squad? Uh from India to challenge the English side in their home conditions. Yeah, Sakib, this is a very exciting tour for me to watch uh, because um, this is really the tale of two very different teams. Um, The Indian cricket team uh, is the top-ranked side, and uh, it is uh, actually on an upswing. It has been winning a lot of series abroad. Uh, I mean, matches abroad, and uh, they recently even challenged uh, South Africa on their own turf and uh, played them very close. Um, so um, uh, so India is a very exciting test cricket team. Uh, on the other side is New is England. Uh, England has obviously traditionally always been very strong in in their home. They've they've been uh, uh, they've been doing very well, but very recently England actually uh, drew a series in England against Pakistan. Um, and they have been floundering somewhat in test cricket. So now they rank number five uh, among the test-playing nations. Um, so one would think that India is coming in as a stronger side, and uh, they're up against England, which is kind of on uh, on the downside. But what I actually see, to answer your question, is the Indian test squad is actually, I think, not really set up to win in England, unfortunately. I, I, I think that there are a lot of holes in the side, and it's going to become a very competitive series because of that. Uh, 
Sean and India is back in England after four years. So, what are some of the matchups? Or what are or who are some of the Indian players that would be on you know on, on a key watch in terms of performances this time around? Sakib, there's quite a few players. Some are veterans and uh, some are new players that have gone come into the squad. Uh, the ones that, that I think we should all be watching out for are one is KL Rahul, exciting young batsman um, who has built quite a reputation in all three formats of the game. Uh, but I think he he needs he needs to uh, stamp his authority on a series. Uh, so look for him to perform. Um, and then uh, you have Ajinkya Rahane, uh, who actually was India's best batsman on India's last tour to uh, England, um, and he has a lot to prove as well because uh, he has been in my mind treated badly uh, by the selectors, and he has he has something to prove. And the last player I'd call out here is uh, Chetishwar Pujara. Uh, who, uh, again, has been India's best batsman in India, but he struggled abroad. Uh, mm. He even came to England uh, to play in the county championship and did not do so well. This this series could be a make or break for him. Okay. Uh, but all three very good, strong players, very exciting. Um, and uh, I think those will, be, uh, uh, those will be your players to watch uh, for India. And uh, in a one-word answer, the Indian bowling attack... Uh, have the goods to take uh, 20 wickets or get England out twice? Your one-word answer would be no, um, <laughs> but I will say why. Uh, we are missing uh, our best bowler in the series, Bhubneshwar Kumar, who took 40% of our for 40% of India's wickets in, in the last series, and he's out with a back injury. And uh, simply put, the rest of the the bowling attack looks quite insipid, uh, not not capable of troubling Joe Root and company. Sure. I mean, we'll talk more about the series as uh, you know, as the series approaches. Still, like ten days to go. Uh, so let's conclude this uh, cricket conversation by the marquee matchup. England's Jimmy Anderson will want to have one more say against India's Virat Kohli, who is uh, considered by many uh, one of the best batsmen in the game in the world of cricket today. Virat Kohli is definitely uh, right up there, um, along with uh, England's uh, own captain Joe Root. Uh, and uh, uh, and in addition to that, Stephen Smith from Australia and Kane Williamson. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, Sakib Virat Kohli has struggled against James Anderson in England in, in a past series, and he'll be anxious to prove himself here. Um, James Anderson is not the same bowler he was a few years ago, and Virat Kohli has grown in stature since that series. Uh, so this is definitely going to be a very interesting battle. Uh, but what might actually undo this battle is that Kohli has uh, very recently been uh, showing some weakness against spin, and England might want to exploit that aspect of his batsmanship. So uh, they might bring in uh, a leg spinner and Adil Rashid uh, to test Virat Kohli uh, on these pitches. Uh, the pitches themselves have been playing a lot slower, so somehow I feel that Kohli is actually going to solve the Anderson problem, but he's going to come up against the uh, the the spinners and uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. Okay, Anand. So that was pretty valuable insight. I'm sure people tuning in for the first time will like cricket, and people who know cricket would definitely get more excited as we continue to discuss cricket on this very forum. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure as always. Oh, it's great to talk about cricket. Thanks for having me, Sakib.